Hello and welcome. Anyone who's been to Merchant City Yoga on a Sunday knows how much I love catching up with everyone over a cup of my freshly brewed spiced chai. These Sunday chai sessions really bring everyone together. A true celebration of friendship, community and connection. I want to try and capture some of that magic and share it with you at home. So I've invited some familiar faces from our MCY family to chat with me over a cuppa. I'm affectionately calling them the chai sessions. Pop the kettle on, get yourself comfy and come and join us. James, thank you so much for joining me. Have Hello, Julie. to be here. Yeah. yeah. Third time we're getting the opportunity to sit down and have a good old chat about yoga and yoga philosophy. So it's possible that for some people you might need no introduction, but for anyone who hasn't met you yet, very briefly, um, James has been teaching for over teaching yoga rather for over twenty years, and I first met James back in two thousand and eleven in Mysore in South India, where not only was he sharing the teachings of yoga, he was also studying for a ME in Sanskrit. Which every time I say that out loud, James, the fact that you achieved an ME in Sanskrit blows my mind a little bit because I know how much I struggle with just the few words that um, I have. So. Um, because of all of that, James's practice and teaching um, brings with it a very holistic approach and he works in a very direct relationship with the original Sanskrit texts. Now, having met and studied with James in Mysore, he's since then been a very regular um, visitor here at Merchant City Yoga and also teaches on our 200-hour yoga teacher training programme. James, I think that just about sums up my story. I mean, clearly you've achieved so much. We could sit for the whole chai session and just talk about you. But let's not. Yes, let's talk about something other than that. <laughs> um, ahead of your visit this spring, um, where you're going to be talking about the eight limbs of yoga, and working with Patanjali's teachings of the Elims of Yoga, I thought it would be helpful just to have a bit of a chat about why the eight limbs are so important and why they're important to us even as modern yoga practitioners. Yeah, sure. So it's it's interesting that why the why the eight limbs important. So the eight limbs are one of the famous sections of this text called the yoga sutra which is a very special text in the yoga tradition because it's the distillation of the foundation principles of yoga and patanjali's text is remarkable in so many ways but it encodes the foundation teachings of yoga in such a way that they're very robust we can work with them in lots of different ways but everything that's there has been very thoroughly tested and we can test it for ourselves by exploring the teachings. Now it's a sutra text and a sutra means stitch. And it also means the thread with which the stitches are stitched with which the text is woven. So in a sutra text, 
sometimes people talk about the yoga sutra as the aphorisms or aphorisms of yoga yes which is it's not like wrong but an, an aphorism aphorism could be a standalone pithy statement of practical wisdom the sutras are that but there's also this thing there is thread so the whole text is one body of teaching and as the text unfolds the deeper understanding of the unfolding teachings is grounded in the earlier foundational teachings now the eight limbs are very special because one section of them is highlighted by patanjali as being an essential practice a kind of all times all places practice and there's only one other place in the text where the linguistic presentation also makes clear this is an essential practice. And that's in chapter one, where Patanjali introduces these four ways to behave in four types of situations, Sutra 33. So in this, in the opening chapter, Patanjali basically tells us what yoga is, what yoga practice is, how yoga works, and how to do it, how to, how to cultivate yoga. <laughs> And the basic recipe potentially offers us, it's very, very beautiful. This is the 33rd Sutra, and I could talk about this at great length, but just to be brief for this purpose here, says, when things are agreeable, when there is sukham, a good space, agreeable vibrations, a pleasant situation, potentially says, maitri, friendliness. When there is dukham, difficult space, difficult situation, not so harmonious vibrations. Then karuna, compassion, com be compassionate. When there is punya, when people are doing wonderful things, when there is virtue, when there is meritorious or beautiful things happening, mudita, let it lift you up, let it fill you with inspiration. And when there is apunya, when you see terror, horror, injustice, things like that, rather than let it disturb you, upeksha, be steady be equanimous so you can meet it from the most skillful seat and respond as skillfully as possible and Patanjali introduces that sutra and then in the next sutras 34 to 39 he gives us so many options to cultivate the medistate the state of being centered balanced yoga and each of those sutras contains the particle va which means and or as well in addition optionally but Sutra 33, no var. So that's the kind of, that's the essential practice. It's not you can choose it. No, no, you have to do that. <laughs> Let's cultivate those four ways of being, which I would love to live in a neighborhood where people all practice that. How would society be like if everybody, well, when things are agreeable, yeah. we're friendly, we're welcoming, we're open, we're receptive. When things are difficult, we're compassionate. When there's beautiful things, we celebrate it. When there's terrible things, we don't go careening off into fear or anger. We don't let ourselves be intimidated or despondent. Rather, we stay steady and we stay open to insights to help us move forward through the challenging situation skillfully. Now, this is a prescription for an essential all times, all places practice, but it's also a description of an established yogin. So if automatically, spontaneously, easily, these four ways of being overflow from us in those four types of situation. We're established in yoga and we don't need to do any other technique. 
But if we're not, then potentially offers us all these other techniques that we can use. And then that's in chapter one. And at the end of chapter one, potentially lays out how the different mechanisms of meditative practice actually work to facilitate this harmonization of the awareness. Then in chapter two, potentially elaborates further how we can actively cultivate that steadiness, that clarity of insight and awareness, so we can then more easily, readily, spontaneously act in ways that are conducive to harmony and clear-sightedness. And then one of the methods he gives is the Ashtanga. This is the when he, he elaborates the method in the Ashtanga okay. section. And these eight ungas, these are eight members of a body of practice. So sometimes people have spoken about the eight limbs as eight stages or eight steps. That's not completely wrong. There are situations, contexts, in which one can see them as stages, but only some situations. More broadly, okay. these are eight limbs or members of one body or collective of practice. So when we were born, Judy, and we came out of the womb, we had our little limbs. And it wasn't that our right arm grew first. And then sometime later, once the right arm had developed to adulthood, then, okay, now it's time for the second stage, the left arm to get going, and then the left leg and the right arm, whatever it might be. No, no, no. They all grow together. And so it is with the eight limbs. Now, one way we can understand the eight limbs, the eight members of the group, the eight members of the body of practice, is that they all support and are present in any yoga technique. There can emerge a little bit of confusion about this because the first of the two limbs, yama niyama, they refer specifically to how we behave in the world in relation to ourselves and others, in relation to our energy and the energy of life. Asana, the third limb, is also associated with the practices of Hatha Yoga that work with the pulsations, the heart and the ta, the expansion, the contraction, the up and down, the firming and the relaxing of these different parts of our body. So asana practice, doing yoga postures and all the rest of it, this can be a mechanism, a technique to cultivate yoga, but to also cultivate all eight limbs. Because asana, in the context of the eight limbs, does not just mean posture practice, not at all. Asana means okay. literally seat. And it's the seat of our awareness. And it's also the seat of our, our, our awareness in a physical body. So yoga being pragmatic recognizes when the physical body is steady and easeful, it's going to be so much easier to cultivate the meditate of clarity in which we can experience our true self. Similarly, yama niyama, when we behave in ways that are coherent, that are ethically congruent, that are in rhythm with ourself and with our environment, with the pulsations of life itself, it's going to be much easier 
to see clearly, to experience balance and harmony. If we've been behaving in ways that are disrespectful to our bodies, to our own intelligences, to the life that supports us, to our the ground in which we live in, when we sit to meditate or we try to do a practice that is inviting balance and harmony, there's going to be so much commotion in our psychic reality. Is this true? Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so yes, yama, niyama, and asana, they are all part of any meditation practice. How am I sitting? How am I sitting in my being? And then we have pranayama. Again, there can be a confusion because pranayama is sometimes used to refer to a whole body of practice that is seeking to extend the life force in hatha yoga, all these practices of the breath. And in the Indic tradition, there are many sound practices. I love these practices of kirtan, yoga singing, and recit Sanskrit recitation. Now, when we recite Sanskrit hymns or we sing kirtan songs, pranayama can happen without torturing the nostrils without forcing the breath. The breath will naturally extend, the exhalation will extend when we're singing long phrases. Pranayama, yes, there's all these beautiful lexicon of breathing practices we can use to facilitate balance and harmony in so many different ways. But pranayama more basically also can refer to any practice, any technique, any attitude which is facilitating more harmony, more efficiency in the movement of energy in and through our bodily vehicle. Anything that's helping us breathe more skillfully, more easefully, can be called pranayama. So eating appropriately, resting appropriately, moving appropriately, these can all be types of pranayama practice. It doesn't just mean observing the breath. Of course, that's also what pranayama means. But in the context of the Yoga Sutra, Sutra texts, one of the ways they're classically defined is they are vishwato mukham. Mukha means facing, or because mukha means mouth or face. Vishwataha means all around. So a sutra text faces out all around. It's not that it's confined to one meaning. Its meaning can shine out in lots of different directions. So yes, we can consider asana, yoga posture practice, pranayama, breathing practices, yes. Yes, 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 that's not incorrect, but it's not the total picture. So yamaniyama asana pranayama, how am I using my energy as a human being? How am I sitting in my own skin? Am I in a state that is steadily easeful? If not, what can I do to make it more steady and more easeful? How is my energy, my prana, circulating? Is energy and information circulating and flowing easefully, nourishingly through my organism? If not, what could I do about it? And of course, the lexicon of pranayama and asana gives us lots and lots of practical resources to facilitate greater harmony. And many types of hatha yoga practice, such as posture-based practices, like the ones that you teach, Judy, what do they do? They invite us to observe the flow of energy. They invite us to focus the lenses and powers of our senses and bring them all together. So they invite this yogic integration. And this relates to the fifth limb, pratyahara. And pratyahara is all about the powers of our senses. Now, yoga recognizes the senses are powerful, instrumental things that we carry with us. And most of us, I think, we can relate to that. We can experience one of our senses pulling us in one direction, another one's pulling us in another direction. Sometimes we can feel pulled in lots yeah. of different directions. And that's so many distractions. Yoga. 
yeah, yeah. that's so many yoga, other than yoga different from yoga yoga is when all those powers come together as one so pratyahara means training the sense powers by harnessing our sense experience and turning it back to the source the underlying consciousness that's allowing us to experience something at all so sometimes people talk about pratyahara's withdrawal of the senses like i'm going to cover my eyes and nose and no 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 in certain contexts one could make that a practice but more broadly it's about training and refining the sense powers so they can actually be deployed to serve their higher purpose of helping us relish our essential self and then the final three limbs relate more overtly, explicitly, directly to the basic practice of yoga, which is meditation. And so we have dharana, dhyana, and samadhi. Now, samadhi is more or less synonymous with yoga. It means a state of awareness that is balanced and established in that balanced state. And we can experience our true self. Dharana is concentrating the awareness. So I'm focusing on an object. Dhyana is the meditative flow of awareness that emerges from sustained concentration. And when that meditative flow of awareness is sustained, then samadhi or yoga emerges. So the eighth of the limbs, samadhi, can emerge from the cultivation of the rest. And when we experience samadhi, then that can imprint and infuse the way we cultivate all the other limbs so however we're practicing yoga if we're in the business of inviting more balance more harmony more skillfulness more efficiency in our lives this frame or structure of the eight limbs is super practical and it gives us like a kind of compass to orient in life and it's a compass that has been tested for millennia because it was already very tested before Patanjali codified it in the Yoga Sutra. Patanjali's teachings are not, uh, they weren't like a new thing when he set them down. They were yeah. the fruit of many, many generations of practice and exploration. So these things have been around for thousands of years and they work. So sometimes these days in the corporate setting, for example, there are some people who've developed like these very helpful models of like four quadrants of like, oh, I want to stay in this side of, I want to be in this quadrant. So when this starts to happen, what can I do to mitigate it? So the Yoga Sutra and the Ashtanga, also, we might say, the archetypal setting of the Bhagavad Gita also, gives us they give us structures that we can refer to and work with, kind of like a compass in our life. So one time, when I first started studying all of this, 20 plus years ago, it was in two, I remember this was actually in 2003, what I'm going to relay. I was in a satsang class in Bangkok and one of the group asked our teacher, you know, why does the human bodily vehicle not come with an instruction manual? You know, if, if God really loved humanity, if, if creation wanted humans to thrive, why didn't it not give us a, an operating manual? And my teacher says, well, we, we, there is one. It's called the Yoga Shastra. And the most beautiful example is, the, one of the most beautiful examples is the Yoga Sutra. It's a practice manual. There are things in the sutras that can seem a little bit far out. But he says, no, no, no. This is not the fairy tale of enlightenment. This is the practice manual of enlightenment. It doesn't ask you to believe anything. It gives you a structure to explore. You can put everything in there to the test. 
And the Ashtanga, the eight limbs, they give us this beautiful compass. So yama niyama, there are five yama principles and five niyama principles. So we can make a, like have these five reference points or 10 reference points. If we're in a dilemma in life, we can maybe ask, what does that yama tell us to do? What does that yama tell us to do? How can we, and when we refer to them all and we come to a place where they can all cohere, that's a means to actually tune in more to our deep intuitive wisdom that can guide us to that deep harmony that is our deeper longing. So that's a lot of talking, Judy, but yes. does that sound practical? I, and I'm just saying yes, I'm right all the time. That's been really, really helpful. And as always, beautifully and simply laid out. And what I want to ask now is how then do we take that theory, that thinking, because it all makes complete sense when you are sitting talking about it. How then can we start to take some of it out into our messy yoga practices, our messy modern postural yoga practices, and begin to explore even taking it beyond that out into to life and, and and how we navigate life. Because as you, you've said, some of it does sound fairly unachievable or idealistic and possibly even knocking on some magical thinking um as well. <laughs> so for us mere mortals. Well I, I wouldn't I wouldn't say it's those things, but I, I know that some people get that impression when they encounter yoga teachings and yoga texts. Yeah, and so, I know it, a lot of it comes down to who you speak to, what translation, and yeah. um, so I think what what you pick so, up. But yeah, yeah. Well, I think it's a it's a great question, Julian. Thank you for asking it like that. And I think the thing, the first thing I'd like to to suggest is that in the traditional way of studying, <laughs> one practices. So in the Indic vision of life, knowing knowledge is always experiential. That the real knowing has to have this experiential component. So we study the Yoga Sutra by practicing them. And we practice yoga by studying it. It's not that, oh, like, you know, there is this false dichotomy, I think, in a lot of our, if, I don't want to be speaking such broad brushstrokes, but in Western yeah. thinking, there's a lot of this black-white thinking. And like, there's theory and there's practice. In the Indic vision, no, these things go together. And Traditionally, when one is studying the Yoga Sutra, one is also practicing them. One is investigating them with a body of practice, a technique of practice. This could be meditation. This can be asana. So the thing that I would recommend it in the weekend, we will be, this is what we'll be exploring is how, how can we work with this structure? How can we bring it to life? Because it, when we do, it can bring so much support to our own lives. Wherever we live, whatever type of stage of life we're at, these structures can just very helpful. So one way we can begin is, it, say, for example, somebody has a technique that they work with regularly. Let's say you do a posture practice. Well, how to make the physical practice yoga? I mentioned at the beginning, the eight limbs, they're all members of the body of practice. So the way I understand it, if anything's going to be a yoga practice, it has to address the whole human being. Right. The physical reality. 
the energetic reality, the sensory, sensual reality, the emotional reality, the intellectual, mental reality, all these parts of ourselves. Yoga means balance. It means joining, unifying. So the only genuine union is one that includes all our parts. So the person who says, oh, I'm, I just do the physical practice, then it's not yoga. Similarly, the person could be bodybuilding and it could be yoga because they could be doing it in this very mindful, bodiful, senseful way. They could be doing it as a means to learn about themselves. Or the person could be practicing some art or some craft or just the approach, the ethos that they bring to the way they parent or the way they run their business or operate in their day-to-day -day job could also be yoga practice. If we're doing it in a way that is helping us understand more how we can bring greater congruence, greater cohesion to this field of our human experience. So if we have a yoga technique like asana, we can think about how can I make it so it's cultivating the yamas and the niyamas? And why I would want to do that. You say, well, why would I want to do that? Because it will make yeah. our life much sweeter. <laughs> the first of the <laughs> yamas much richer, we'll be able to taste the flavors of life more fully and find greatest fulfillment and satisfaction. So don't just take my word for it. Come to the weekend and explore and find out for yourself. <laughs> but for example, the first of the yamas is ahimsa. Now, hims is the, the verb to harm. So sometimes we can come across translations of ahimsa, such as things like nonviolence, non-harming. These are, again, they're accurate, but they're not a total representation of the Sanskrit term. Because the Sanskrit term ahimsa is this, this feature of Sanskrit. So himsa means harming. When we add that prefix a, it means different from, other than, less than, not quite the same as. It can also mean not. So non-harming is part of ahimsa, but it's not the whole story of ahimsa. And potentially tells these yamas are things we practice all the time. So they're not don'ts. They're not prohibitions. The yamas are active injunctions for things for us to cultivate. So ahimsa really means practicing that which is not harming. In other words, cultivating harmony, practicing loving kindness, practicing a presence that is respectful. So ahimsa, if we do our practice in keeping with the spirit of ahimsa, we're going to cultivate harmony and joy and ease in ourselves. And who doesn't want that? <laughs> Second, satya. Now, satya is related from the verb us, the verb to be. So satya is all about presence, authenticity, truthfulness. What we experience as human beings, the truer that we live, the easier we live. The more congruence we have, the more coherence we have, the more easefully the system functions. So if I think, okay, I'm going to make my asana practice a cultivation of ahimsa and satya just to begin with, but we'll look at all the five yamas and all the five niyamas in the context of the weekend exploration. This is, can start to have a very significant impact on our day-to-day -day life because we can start noticing, ah, where am I perhaps harboring tendencies that are getting in the way of the deeper harmony that I would actually like to invite into my life? Where am I perhaps being not quite as authentic or honest with myself as I could be? And how could I perhaps shift that not by forcing myself to adhere to some or conform to some external viewpoint, but how can I actually work with this amazing chariot of my bodily vehicle, which has energy, which has sense powers, which has emotions, which has mental intellectual capacities, this vehicle, how can I work with it in my own authentic way? 
a way that feels good in my own skin, in my own context, in a way that is actually cultivating harmony. So yama niyama, asana, pranayama, pratyahara, dharana, dhyana, samadhi, the eight limbs, they are a structure that help us do that. And I don't know about you, but I, I would like more harmony and authenticity and presence in my life. And so the eight limbs give us a really robust container to do that. Once we start exploring them in the context of yoga techniques and yoga exercises, if we say if we have a regular practice, we do certain things every day, or we do them regularly, then what we practice, we get good at. Once we start to apply them in one realm of life, we can start to access them more readily in other parts of life. Did that answer the question a little bit, Judy? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, again, obviously we could talk about this for hours because yes. I, I do feel when when we start to kind of um, unpack a little bit like you're doing, the, you know, the 360 degree view, the wider view, the even just the simple um, fact that there's rarely a very direct translation from Sanskrit into English. It can mean a number of different things, each with a slightly different nuance or, or connotation in that it's it's incredibly liberating but at the same time it can be incredibly confusing as well especially um you know without context without experience and without i would probably suggest the guidance of a trusted teacher as well and I think when we, we look at the eight limbs, sometimes it can feel a little bit like we are being asked, like you said, to conform or to fit into those boxes and to follow those rules rather than, as you talk about it, using them as a means to to live more fully. Yeah. Like, you know, to, so... I'm going to wind back to talk about your weekend. So the weekend that you're here, you talk about it being an active, um, pragmatic and accessible environment mm. to begin to look at these thoughts and these teachings and these approaches. And, and I just wondered if you could maybe talk a little bit to what that looks like and how it works if, if people aren't familiar with it in working with that we yeah yoga philosophy can sometimes just be seen as a bit of a dusty dry lecture <laughs> and that's not the case so just what what does it look like yeah so I, mean, I think one thing i'd like to suggest is these are not rules these are very robust principles and i think you know yoga the way that i understand the yoga shastra the yoga teachings are designed as a kind of structure that if we work with it it can bring us to deeper authority, deeper sovereignty, deeper self-trust. But we have to work skillfully with the teachings. So like you're suggesting, Judy, if we just pick and choose, and if we approach the sutra died in our own existing cultural, personal viewpoint, then we could easily use the sutra teachings to potentially justify the perpetuation of self-sabotaging habits so but once we start to gain a 
experience of working with them practically, and we say how, how useful they are as like a mirror. So I always think of like the Yoga Sutra, the Bhagavad Gita as mirror texts. When we look mm -hmm. into them, they can show us where we are and where we may be getting in our, our own way. They are tools for inquiry. So in the context of the weekend, what we'll do is we'll explore these principles in practical application. And this will start, we'll do physical practices. We'll do some yoga, asana, and movement practices that will be um, very illustrative of the principles. They'll help us understand those principles in relation to how we work with our bodily vehicle. And from there, we'll also consider how, so we'll, we'll do exercises that work with movement and bodily posture. We'll also do things that work with the breath and sound and like, so how we can work with that, with pranayama. We'll work with the senses, but we'll also do exercises where we'll kind of, let's say we take one of the yama principles, or we'll take all of them, and we will look at situations where we can recognize how these principles can inform how we make decisions or how we move in a certain situation. So we'll do simple games of communication. We'll, we'll, we're doing things by ourselves, working with others. And this will give us practical experience of how these principles can inform activity, can inform ongoing inquiry, can inform playing in the dance of life, you might say. So... Um, I don't, is that clear enough? Does that give us a sense of, but basically it's not that we're going to sit around and I'll talk and we'll listen. Well, I'll talk, I'll talk sometimes, of course, but we'll I be was, doing I was a lot going of, to see it we're going to do a lot of James learning. that you will be talking. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I think there are, you know, that so there are some, some of the programs that we've done in the past where we've studied a particular body of text and we've tried to do a lot in a short time. There's been quite a lot of talking. This exploration weekend um, of course, there will be some talking to set things up, but then we'll do various learning exercises. And some of the sessions will involve activities that some people describe it as like, oh, I like those primary school learning games. <laughs> uh, so we'll do some kind of active learning games that, you know, they just that, that, that also invite us to experience the teachings in different ways and that draw on different intelligences. So I used to be a school teacher, used to teach in university. And so I, I like to create situations. And to me, this is yogic learning. Yoga, we mentioned, is all the members of the gang of the being, all the parts. So I'm going to do my best to facilitate or invite learning scenarios, learning situations and exercises that stimulate different learning styles. So the active pragmatic, okay. that's going to be very overt, but also there'll be a theoretical framework and there'll be some space and time for reflection. And we'll be working with different learning intelligences. So there's definitely going to be kinesthetic, physical, sensory learning. But there'll also be space for emotional learning and intellectual learning. Those things, everything's invited to the party. So, and there's the idea, and it's, it's a celebrate, like in the yogic vision of life, one way we can think of life is a festival. And when we're having a celebratory good time, when we're coming together, when we bring all the members, like, what does it mean to have a celebration? It means to get together and have festivity. So that's what yoga actually means. Bring all the parts together so they can exult and rejoice and experience the beautiful possibilities of mutual support. So when we gather in this type of context, we can explore 
and we can learn from each other's experiences and perspectives within a container that is helping us like deepen our understanding of the reference or structure of the Yoga Sutra. And beautifully brings us full circle because that's bringing everything together rather than some of the the divided thinking around yoga and studying yoga philosophy or no, yoga, yoga practice. Always, it's beautiful, always, it's bringing it together again. Yeah, yoga always seeks to unify. Done. And there's so many beautiful stories that reaffirm this and maybe I'll tell one or two over the weekend. But if the practice is creating or our approach is creating more division, then it's probably not that we're probably maybe getting in our own way a little bit. And the practice is always seeking to harmonize, to integrate, to reconcile, to draw out the complementary potential of those things that seem that they might not actually be able to work together. James will be here 22nd to the 24th of March, 2024 for more unification, for more bringing it together, for more conversation and for loads of questions. Yeah, as there's well. definitely plenty of space for us to, to explore together, to, to inquire and learn from each other. Yeah. James, thank you so much for taking the time to chat. It's today. a pleasure, Julie, and I look forward to as being close Always, as always, learn loads. It all makes sense when I sit and chat to you. And then when I'm away, I'm just like, what was that? Yeah, what was that again? Repetition. That's what it is. Well, that's the other thing with these, with these teachings. It's like they're not intended to be, oh, I, I read the Yoga Sutra one time and now I've, no, no, these <laughs> are companions for ongoing exploration. And so the text, it's not like a text that you, you know, for example, I, I, I've just been in India and I, I, I bought a lot of books in India um, and many of them are books that I only find the type of books I only see. It was so interesting. I, I went to a, the bookshop in India and it's like, Oh, wow. It's, you know, I went, I went twice to a particular bookshop yeah. in Mysore and both times I, you know, I filled a, a basket, you know, with several kilograms it, of books. It feels almost like a trolley dasher. Stuff, yeah, doesn't yeah, it? It's yeah. like, there's more, no, there's more. I need more. Oh, there's more. But as well as the, you know, some of the books that I would only find in India, there are some other books that, you know, other types of books are available, you know, story books. And so there's a couple of books that I already, that I bought in India that I've already read, and I'm just going to give them away that it was helpful. It was useful for me to read it, but it served its purpose. But then there are other books that I know I'm, I'm going to want to refer to this again and again and again. And the Yoga Sutra is that type of book. It's a practice manual. So when we're going through changes and difficulties, we can refer to the manual. We can look into it again and we'll deepen our understanding. And it's part of the magic of the text that every time we look into it, it gives us helpful, fresh insight. So I'm very much looking forward to, I mean, we've said many times over the years, the eight limbs, you can never explore them too many times because every time we do, they do give us more practical support. Yeah, they mean something different, don't they? Because our experience is different, yeah. where we're at is different. Yeah. James, thank you so much. We're going to stop talking now. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. I hope you enjoyed our chat. If you've got any questions, you can email me or find us on social media. I'll see you here next time.